Welcome to the Books of Titans podcast, where I seek truth in the world's best books. I'm your host, Eric Rostad, coming to you from the beautiful Books of Titans studio in Franklin, Tennessee. My goal is to read 52 books per year and share what I'm learning. I'll talk a bit about each book, tie ideas together from a variety of genres, and share the one thing I always hope to remember from each book. Today I'm going to cover six different books I've recently read. Those books are the following. Radical Hope, Ethics in the Face of Cultural Devastation by Jonathan Lear. Scotland 2070, Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise by Ian and Dorothy Godden. Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 1972 by Hunter Thompson. The Spy Who Came In from the Cold by John Lacar. Rising Tiger by Brad Thor. And A History of the World in Six Glasses by Tom Standage. So I'm just going to cover two books per segment of this episode, and I'll, I'll cover them in order that I read them. So the first one, first ones I read to the, to the more, more recent books. Uh, in fact, I just finished the, the last one yesterday, or, or, or this morning, actually. So uh, I'll start with Radical Hope here. And this book is by Jonathan Lear. The subtitle is Ethics in the Face of Cultural Devastation. And I heard about it. Uh, it was it was a book suggested by Sebastian Younger. And what's happening in this book, it's a, it's a nonfiction account of the last of the Crow Nation. Uh, so the Native American tribe, the Crow, and, and is specifically looking at their last chief. And his name was Plenty Coups. Coups. Uh, so C-O-U-P-S, Plenty Coups. Um, and coops in, in this case are, um, they're like achievements, but they're also, it's also what they would call this, this stick that they would place on, uh, a, like on a battlefield. And so it, it was called the coup stick. And what it would do is, is someone in the coo, in the crow tribe would, would plant this stick and it told the, the enemy that this is our boundary. If you pass this, you will die. Uh, this we are not backing away from this boundary. So it was. It was. Uh, Jonathan Lear describes it as it was an existential declaration of an impossibility, uh, and it was this establishment of a boundary in in the enemy. So the enemy knew, like this, you were not going to go past here, uh, or you had to die trying. And so, plenty coups. Uh, this this meant that this man, this chief, had had plenty of achievements or, or things that he was deemed courageous for in his cultural context. But that cultural context was quickly going away with the arrival of the white man and just the decimation of the Crow culture to where they, they ended up living on a reservation. And so this book chronicles the life of, of this man. And it's just a fascinating look at w- w- what happens in, 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 this, in this scenario. Like how, how can you move on as a culture where everything that, that your culture is based upon in, t- in terms of the virtues, like the virtue, that was a virtuous thing to, to be the man that, that planted that coup stick and, and set the boundary. And that was a courageous thing. Uh, when you're moved to a reservation, that that's not create. There's no way you can do that anymore. Uh, so what does that mean for courage? Uh, the the women in that in that tribe, they would help the men get ready for for these battles, and and so a lot of like just even preparing food. There were there when you're preparing food for these battles, there was a 
there was a reasoning behind it. There was a meaning behind it. And so everyone in this culture had, had this sense of meaning. Their virtues came from that. Um, what was deemed right and what was, what, what should cause shame. Those things were all defined within this cultural context and it was just stripped away. And so the, the really neat thing that Jonathan Lear describes in this book is that this, this, this last chief, Plenty Coup, has a dream. And in this dream, he kind of sees the, the future and, and what they need to do as a culture to, to get through this, this upcoming uh, change. And it, it was so interesting because the author Jonathan Lear would contrast that with, with other tribes and how they didn't make it and, and they took a different route. But uh, for, for the, the Crow tribe, uh, with their leader, their whole objective was to look at the, the chickadee bird and to learn from that. And that bird, what, what it's known for is learning from others. And so in a way, the Crow Nation is is having to learn from others. They're having to learn what it means to be courageous outside of their original cultural context. So there, there's a lot uh, to think about while reading this book. Uh, it, it, it made me think of the first book on my list this year, which was On Reading Well by Karen Swallow Pryor. She goes through a lot of the virtues in that book. And, and so it was just neat to think about the virtues while you're reading this and, and how, how would the virtues live on? Or it, it even causes you to put yourself in that situation of if the culture that you were a part of, it was, if it was to be completely decimated, uh, maybe by invasion or, or something like that, what, what would you do? Like, how would you move on? Um, how, how would just changing changes of what it would mean to be courageous for your culture? Like how, how would you move forward with that? And so this, this book was just a really neat look at that. It's a short book. It's, uh, uh, 211 pages. Um, sorry, it's 154 pages. And I, I'm going to highlight this for each of these, these books as well. The number of pages, uh, I read it between May 23rd and May 25, 25th. So there's like 51 pages per day. It's a short book, but it, it really packs a punch. And I recommend this one. I, I really enjoyed it. Next up is Scotland 2070, Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise. And the tagline on this one is an ambitious vision for Scotland's future without the politics. Now, this one was written by Ian and Dorothy Godden, and, and I know them. Um, I, uh, my wife and I are friends with, with their daughter, and uh, the daughter lives in Scotland, and then Ian and Dorothy have written this book about Scotland for 50 years in the future. So what, what could Scotland look like? Uh, Scotland is a country that is near and dear to my heart. Uh, I, I, I went there the first time when I was 20 years old and, and have been back many times. I just I love the country. I love learning about it. I love reading about it. And, uh, and we just got back from a trip there uh, about a month ago. I love being there. And so I, it was really interesting to read this book, just to, to kind of think about what Scotland could be like in in. 50 years. And it's a small country. It's 5 million people. I, I used to live in Atlanta, Georgia, and there's more people in in Atlanta than there are in the entire country of Scotland. But uh, the authors of this book say that that's an advantage. That means that they can adapt quickly or or shift uh, their how, how they're doing things in, in Scotland in quickly. So this book goes through eight different areas uh, on things that Scotland could could focus on. And they are, are these, looking north, reforestation, renewables, healthcare, financial services, 
AI, artificial intelligence, digital technology, and maritime industries. So I, with this one, there was a lot to read to read through. Uh, it, it's just kind of neat to to consider a country from all the different vantage points that that this book goes into. But I, with this one, I just want to highlight one thing that, that really stuck out to me. And it's something I did not know about before. I'm sure you know about it. Uh, I've, I've mentioned it to other people <laughs> since reading this book, and they're all like, yeah, I, I know about that. Uh, but, it, but it was this. There, there's a northern sea route that goes above Scotland and, and all the way over to, uh, past Russia. And that passage is starting to be navigable because the ice up there is is melting. And so ships have started going going through there. But you, you know, you're looking looking ahead here in the in the not too distant future, uh, this could become a major trade route. And it would cut just it would cut a ton of days off of in, instead of having to go south and, and go around uh, to get to some of these same places. So I just didn't know about this. So this book talks a lot about it because Scotland would be in a very strategic place in that. I mean, they, they could they could be a major port in that new trade trade route. And so whereas Scotland, kind of their entire history has looked south, uh, they've looked to England, they've looked to other markets kind of south, uh, this book is saying, you know what, in the future, Scotland may be looking north and they may be a, a major port in this new trade route. The the other kind of interesting thing about this trade route is so much of it goes around Russia. And you just think of, of the geopolitics of, of the current moment. And it, it kind of, I guess, put it in a different light as well, just uh, with Russia, Russia's war with against Ukraine. Um, is How does that fit in with all this? Because Russia's about to control a huge trade route. Uh, what, it, what, what, what does that mean for what they're doing land-wise here? And then what also does it mean for China? And how close will China need to be with, with Russia in terms of this? Uh, because China would not have any ports along this, this route. So how would they get to it? Uh, would they have to have better relations with Russia? It just kind of brings up a lot of questions, but just got me thinking a lot because I, I hadn't read about it, hadn't learned about it. And, and now all of a sudden there's this Northern sea route that goes from the Pacific to the Atlantic across Russia. And it's something that could really help out Scotland going forward and in a lot of other countries that, that border that, that trade route. So that was my main takeaway from that book. Uh, I, I did enjoy just reading the whole thing, uh, about they looked at education. They looked at the airports. They looked at, um, uh, planting trees. They looked at different industries that Scotland could easily get into. And it was just really neat to, to consider a country. And, and then, uh, they compared it to another of other countries, uh, Norway, Singapore, uh, maybe some other, whether the countries were nearby or a sim of a similar size. And just to, to say, you know, here's what Scotland could do if such and such. So neat, neat to think through that. That book was two, 211 pages. I read it between May 26th and May 30th and, uh, averaged 42 pages a day. I actually read that book when I was in Scotland. So that, that was also, uh, very fun. I'm going to, uh, stop here in this first segment and then I'll get into the next two books in segment two. 
All right, book three out of the six for this episode was Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 1972 by Hunter S. Thompson. Now, I didn't know what I was getting into with, with this book. I had I had seen it a lot, but I had never heard anything about it, and no one had ever suggested it to me. I just, I was intrigued and, and thought I'd give it a try. And it was quite the wild ride. Uh, Hunter Thompson was the national affairs editor at Rolling Stone. And what this book is, is a collection of his writing during this time, during the lead up to the presidential election of 1972, which had the incumbent Republican Richard Nixon against a Democratic candidate. And so Hunter is kind of following the the different candidates around for the Democratic ticket. And then as it as it goes into November, so it's narrowing down into George McGovern. And, uh, and, and then Thompson is is writing about it, but he's at a lot of these events. He's just kind of this crazy guy. He, he's he's into drugs. He's into just like, he's just a wild man. And uh, he the the type of writing that he established it's called gonzo journalism and and the what what happens is he kind of becomes part of the story and so that's a really interesting aspect of this book like he he's a character in the book he's not just saying you know george mccovern did this and and uh wallace did this and and it, it's like he's part of it and, and and he inserts himself into the story a lot and he'll insert himself into the story in in the crazy things he's doing and the amount he's drinking and the amount he of in the drugs he's doing and that sort of thing but then also just uh, he has these just the, the most incredible interviews too. I mean, the last section of the book is an interview he has with George McGovern after he has lost to, uh, to Nixon and the questions he asks and the stuff he gets out of McGovern in that interview is just astounding. Uh, so a lot of really interesting parts of this book. And, and so I thought I'd just highlight a few things that I learned while reading this book. And the first is this uh, so George McGovern was the the Democratic candidate that that finally made it to the to the end and then he he lost to Nixon uh, and and what was really interesting is that Hunter Thompson he talks a lot of, in the book just about journalism and what people expect of journalism and you know you want this person that's kind of outside of everything and doesn't have feelings towards it but it's just kind of stating the facts and here you've got a guy Hunter Thompson who. He became so enamored with George McGovern that he it, it, it affected his writing in in the sense that he totally botched the prediction of how George McGovern would do. And before that, Hunter Thompson was was pretty right on with in terms of of saying, hey, this is what's going to happen in in this election, or this is going to happen what with this candidate. But he he just got so enamored with with the person he was writing about that uh, he kind of lost ob- objectivity there. So that that was really interesting. But uh, the first thing I learned was that George McGovern pretty much lost with the voters in in what was called the Eagleton affair. So uh, Gov- McGovern had chosen uh, Eagleton as his vice president, and then quickly it came out that Eagleton had had some, some serious mental issues where he was getting like shock therapy and, and different things, and it just really freaked everybody out to where they didn't want this guy in the ticket. And McGovern was saying, no, I'm going to stick by this guy. I'm going to stick by this guy. He's the right guy. And then uh, all of a sudden he drops him. And so... 
McGovern had had kind of stated that he was the the non-politician. And then the way that he handled this was in a very political manner. And uh, he just, after that, he there was no way that he was going to win. He, he could not come back from that, uh, with the voters. Uh, so the Eagleton affair is what, what's that called? That's called. And, and, uh, it was interesting to learn about that and just to see McGovern kind of fumbling the, the response, uh, different people fumbling the response, uh, just really interesting to see that whole thing play out. Another thing I learned is that, that, uh, voters knew about Watergate before the 1972, election and, and still voted for, for Nixon overwhelmingly. Uh, so I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that, that, that water, that news of Watergate had started, uh, trickling out. Uh, Hunter Thompson mentions it in, in a number of the chapters. Um, so th- that was interesting. Uh, another thing, uh, Wallace, uh, one of the democratic candidates was shot. Uh, he lived through it, but it, on the campaign trail, he was shot. And, um, it actually kind of helped him in some ways, uh, but but he he ended up uh, losing to McGovern a- along the way. And then the 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 last thing that that was really astounding is, um, and, and I'll read a few sections here, is that the presidential vote in that year of 1972 was lower than the state level offices. So um, uh, Hunter Thompson says this in a, in an interview thing. I think it was half the states then had voted for the state-level offices, which on average uh, runs about 15% lower than the presidential vote. So, uh, uh, end quote. So, so I'm taking myself out of the quote here. The, it, when people go to vote, usually uh, people voting for the president is 15% higher than people voting in their state elections. But in this, in this election, the presidential vote was lower uh, was 10 to 15% lower in, in some, in some States. So what that means is that, uh, people going to the polls, they would vote for their state government, uh, and the leaders for state government, but they would not even fill out for president. And that usually never happens. Like it's, it's always the other way around. Like more people will vote for the president because it's, it's, everyone's been hearing about it for so long and, and, uh, they're going to vote for president and then, oh, okay, I'll just fill in the state stuff too. This was the other way around. And so people were either so disgusted that they didn't even want to vote or they just didn't care about it at the point. But that w- that was really an interesting piece of information that uh, was something that I, that I learned in this book. So if you're into politics, this is this is a great book. It's just a deep look into a campaign, uh, how different people did things. You, you see, you see different politicians during this time that will remind you of current politicians. And, and so just to kind of like keep that in mind when you're reading it and see what happened to them. Um, yeah, I, I've really enjoyed that book. Next up was The Spy Who Came In From the Cold by Jean Le Carr. This one was suggested by Graham Greene, an author I read in 2019. And this book was written in the 1960s. So it is it is kind of one of the main spy thrillers, the the classics of, of spy spy novels and that sort of thing. And and it was so good. It, it's just funny because it, it's not like the it's not like 
somebody getting killed every few pages or, or bombs and stuff blowing up and all that. It's more like the intrigue and character development. And then it's just a very rich novel in, in playing on words. So the spy who came in from the cold, this, this whole novel is built around the idea of the, the, the main character coming from out from under the cold. And, and that's, that's to get out of the spy game to get to to be to be finally done with that that world. Uh, but when you're in it, you're in the cold, and then to get out of it to to come uh, come out of the out of the cold. And so when when you're reading the book, I just started underlining every time uh, the word cold was used because it was it was constant, and, and you almost you're reading it and, and you're almost feeling cold because it's just the whole novel takes place in 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 the cold. And so it's not just weather wise, but it's like. Uh, a, a description of, of the type of world that he's in. And so th- there's, uh, he meets, a, uh, the main character meets a woman. And if there are any scenes where it's somewhat warm, it's, it's in these scenes with the, with the woman. And so even, even amidst the cold of, of, of the life he's, he's living as, as a spy, there's, there, there's these scenes of, of warmth. And th- the other part of that is this idea of of how cold that life is, uh, because there there's a lot of discussion about the means versus the ends uh, of being a Scott, uh, a spy, and and what what's the ultimate end is to get results, and so the means by which that happens, uh, there could be deaths, there could be betrayal. Uh, that's just part of the game, you know. That that has to happen because you're you're trying to get to this ultimate uh, outcome. And and here, this woman comes into his life and and kind of asks him about that. And and you know, is that true? Is, is should that be true? And so, it's neat to consider the that idea throughout the book of of just cold. And and if he's trying to to come out of the cold, uh, what what does that look like? What does it mean? And so that that was just something fascinating to to look at throughout the book. Has a very memorable ending. I will not spoil it for you, but uh, one that you'll be hard to forget the ending of this book. So I, I enjoyed this one. It was two hundred fifty three pages. I read it uh, June twenty two and twenty three. So uh, just over two days. Um, I read it quite quickly. I I really enjoyed it. Next up, the final two books for this episode. All right, next up, Rising Tiger by Brad Thor. And this was a late addition to my reading list. This is the first book by Brad Thor that I had ever read. And I added it about a day before I read it. And that's because the bookstore where I'm business manager, Landmark Booksellers here in Franklin, Tennessee, we had Brad in and he signed and personalized books for our our customers. And so we had it on our website to where you could pre-order this book and then you could put a note in, uh, you know, I'd like Brad to sign it this way for a friend or, or for myself. And, and so then we had Brad in, uh, and, and, and he, he signed, signed the books in, in, uh, all of the staff there just got to be with him while, while he was doing that and talk to him, uh, talk to him about his books, his life and all sorts of stuff. So it was really fun. So I, I picked up this book the day that, uh, he was doing that, that signing at the store, um, and, and read it that day, uh, just in preparation. I, I wanted to, to, to be able to, to talk about the book 
with him. So I, I actually um, got to within 20 pages of the end. And so after the event, I, I, I went home and, and finished the book that, that same day. But, but it was really neat to, to meet him. Um, and w- what his books are, it, it, so it's a thriller, and it's kind of a spy thriller, but, it, but it's also more like he's, he's following uh, military and, and Navy SEALs and, and ops and that kind of thing that are taking place. But what he's doing is, is weaving things that you've heard about. So it could be a story that you've heard, like in fact, the, the, the novel starts out with a border skirmish between China and India that actually happened a couple of years ago. And then that's the start of this, this entire novel. And, and that story kind of weaves its way and connects to different points throughout, throughout the book. And then you'll, you'll be reading different parts of the book and like, man, I, I heard something about that. Um, but he just kind of goes into more detail and he, he has this character, Scott Horvath, that, that you follow through all his novels. So Brad writes a, a book a year, and uh, they're they're thrillers, but but Scott Horvath is is this main character that kind of uh, weaves through throughout all of these these books. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I like these kind of books. There, it's it's like watching Mission Impossible uh, or a, a a recent James Bond movie, that type of thing. It it was fun to to contrast it with the book I had read right before this of the spy who came in from the cold. The, the spy who came in from the cold is very 1960-ish, very very European spy, where it's very dialogue-driven, dri- uh, storyline, character development, that sort of thing. In Rising Tiger, uh, there's character v- development, but there's a lot of things blowing up, and there's a lot of action and in, in that kind of thing, too. So more like that, um, that more recent uh, James Bond compared to earlier James Bond type thing. Very interesting meeting Brad. I, I asked him a few questions while he was there. One question that I asked him was, was there some book that, that got you started on enjoying spy movies or spy uh, books or, or that sort of thing? And he said his parents were very big into spy thrillers. And, and so he had grown up in, in one of the me- books he mentioned was The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, that that had, had influenced him in his writing. So it was neat to have read that right before reading Rising Tiger. Um, and then I, at the end, I, I, I was telling, I was on that kick with the Scotland book that I mentioned at the beginning in, in this, this Northern sea passage. And I was like, have you heard about this Northern sea passage? Uh, you know, cause uh, part of the rising tiger book talks about the, the belt in, initiative by, by China and, uh, different initiatives they had with, with different countries and connecting different countries and, and, and that sort of thing. And so I was like, man, have you heard about this? this Northern Sea Passage that was so cool. I was reading in the Scotland book and he's like, yeah, my last book was all about that called Black Ice. I was like, oh, so maybe I need to read that one next um, to to just get in into more with that. So yeah, very, very cool. Um, I, I, I just like that aspect of, of you, it, kind of current events being tied into a, a story together and, and you're learning along the way, but it's also action-packed and, and a lot of fun. So that was Rising Tiger by Brad Thor. The last one here that I'll cover in this episode was A History of the World in Six Glasses. And this is by Tom Standage. This was one where I had, uh, I'd, I'd heard about this book from a number of different places. And it was one of those things where I'd, I'd heard about it enough from enough different people that it was just like, okay, the planets are aligning and it's, t- they're telling me to read this book. And I 
that's how I end up choosing a lot of the books that I read is I just hear, hear the same recommendation from a lot of people. And so this one, as the title would suggest, follows a history of the world in six glasses. So there are six different drinks that are covered in this book, and then uh, some historical ramifications for each of the drinks. So it's beer, wine, spirits, coffee, tea, and Coca-Cola. So I wanted to highlight a few of these. And, and then kind of the the historical moment that 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 played that played into that that particular drink. So the first one is beard beer, uh, and and that tied into domestication and and agriculture and and people stopping being hunter and gatherers and and settling and and planting and and that sort of thing. And so, uh, beer is tied in closely with bread. Uh, so cereal grain would be used to make the beer. And beer ended up being safer than water because you had to boil the the water as part of the process to make make the beer. And so in a lot of cases, you, you were better off drinking the beer than you were the water, and it was safer and that sort of thing. Uh, so uh, the tie-in that Tom Standage does there is just that that beer was kind of there from the beginning with, uh, in terms of agriculture. Next up, you have wine. And this kind of became the civilized drink, and, and it... Um, I want to read a part because it, it's kind of maintained that uh, over over the years. Wine drinking, usually in moderation and with meals, still predominate predominates in the south of Europe, within the former boundaries of the Roman Empire. In the north of Europe, beyond the reach of Roman rule, beer drinking, typically without the accompaniment of food, is more common. And then today's the world's leading producers of wine are France, Italy, Spain, and the people of Luxembourg, France, and Italy are the leading consumers of wine. And then the countries where most beer is consumed in contrast would mostly have been regarded as barbarian territory of the Romans. Germany, Austrian, Austria, uh, Belgium, Denmark, Czech Republic, Britain, and Ireland, end quote. So just kind of a neat part there uh, where the, the difference between beer and wine, uh, those lines kind of still exist to where wine is still the predominant drink in, in Southern Europe. Uh, beer is... is more popular in Northern Europe. Next up, you've got uh, spirits. And he tied in the slave trade and rum with with spirits. So tied in, like you wouldn't have had some of these things as strong as they were, were it not for all these pieces working together. So here, I just want to read a few parts of this. The connections between spirits, slaves, and sugar were further strengthened following the invention of a powerful new drink made from the waste products of the sugar production process itself. That drink was rum. Then a few pages later, the uh, all this was far in the future, however, when rum was first invented. Its immediate significance was as a currency, for it closed the triangle linking spirits, slaves, and sugar. Rum could be used to buy slaves with which to produce sugar, the leftovers of which could be made into rum to buy more slaves, and so on and so on. And then the last part of this chapter. Sugar, which originated in Polynesia, had been introduced to Europe by the Arabs, taken to the Americas by Columbus, and cultivated by slaves from Africa. Rum was the liquid embodiment of both the triumph triumph and the oppression of the first era of globalization. End quote. Uh, so, yeah, just how he, he went through different spirits. So uh, whiskey in in the colonies and, and um, 
uh, bourbon and and some of the different spirits. Uh, but uh, the one he focused on for for one chapter there was rum and how that played in with with the slave trade and and uh, different parts of history. So that that was um, quite interesting. Next up was coffee, and uh, that tied in with the Enlightenment. And then the other thing that was really interesting is that uh, part of why coffee is more popular in the in the United States than than tea has to do with with taxes. Uh, so here's here's a, a section. It, America America now admits coffee free of duty, duty, and the increase in consumption has been enormous, noted the Ill- Illustrated London News that year, and the year was 1872. Meanwhile, tea's popularity declined as patterns of immigration shifted and the proportion of immigrants coming from tea-drinking Britain diminished. End quote. So part of it was just, you know, who is coming to to the United States, uh, what, what, what was their drink of choice from where they were coming from? Uh, was it tea or was it not? So that was one aspect of it. But then also in 1872, at least, uh, there was no duty on imports of coffee and there was for tea. So coffee was cheaper and could be enjoyed by a larger portion of the population. Uh, so again, just kind of interesting how one drink might become the, the drink of the land, whereas it's, it's not that in, in other countries, which is a nice tie into tea and, uh, tea is the drink of, of the UK and China and India. And so, uh, Tom Standish goes through that history quite a bit and then also ties in the history of the East India company and, and how tea tied in to all that. It was really fascinating. The last one is Coca-Cola. So their uh, big thing that is highlighted there is just Coca-Cola's connection with American, uh, American ideals, uh, Americanism, capitalism, all that, and just the strong connection to marketing as well. So that there's a statement that when, when something is cheap, when a product is cheap to make, uh, you end up spending a lot of the money on on marketing to distinguish your product from someone else's. And so Coca-Cola, you, you see a lot of early advertising. You see the the script that was written. I mean, this that's the original script from the, the late 1800s. And just the, the terms they would use, the way that they would promote it, uh, a lot to learn about marketing in that. I also wanted to highlight two stories that uh, these are things I learned about Coke, Coca-Cola in, in this book that were uh, quite, quite interesting. So in one, in, uh, this is during the Soviet Union time, there was a, a general, his name was um, Gregory Zukov, and he was the Soviet Union's greatest military leader. And he, he had a soft spot for Coca-Cola. But Coca-Cola was the American drink, and you really weren't supposed to drink it during this time. And so Harry Truman worked with Coca-Cola to make a clear version, so an, uh, a, a colorless version of Coca-Cola that could be shipped to, to Zukov in bottles that had a red Soviet star on it, but it was clear, so it looked like vodka. And they arranged uh, to, to get this general... The, this these drinks these bottles of coca-cola because he liked it so much so that that was really funny the other thing that was really interesting that i that i learned was that nixon in 1962 after he lost the race for california governor he joined pepsi's law firm and became pepsi's ambassador overseas and he worked closely with with uh 
some of the Soviet countries to get Coke, uh, not Coke, but to get Pepsi into those countries. And it actually ended up kind of backfiring for Pepsi because uh, when the Berlin Wall fell and and communism fell in the Soviet bloc, Pepsi was kind of viewed as the Soviet drink, or or uh, whereas Coca Cola was viewed as the freedom drink, and and so people flocked to Coca Cola once once uh, Coca Cola could get into that market, but they couldn't get in for a while. But um, but Nixon had helped Pepsi get into the Soviet Union, so just something I, I didn't know about Nixon. Um, and and just uh, some really interesting history, but that's really the what this book is about is is looking at history through the lens of these drinks, and it was really I, I loved it, and and as I was reading it, it made me want to drink each of these things, uh, but but I think going forward, anytime I am drinking one of these things, uh, I'm gonna some of these stories are gonna come to mind. And, and just kind of the broader story and how these things fit into history. I, I love reading books like this. I love reading books that, that take like a certain vantage point of history and, and look at it from that, that lens. And, th- and this does that. So a quick book, I, I read it in four days. It's 274 pages. Um, and it was just a, a really, really fun one to read. So that's going to do it for this episode. I am on book 26. I just started book 26 today and we are, um, uh, when this airs, it'll be the, the first of July. So I'll probably have that book finished by then. And I'll, so I'll be pretty close on track of, of getting through all 52 books on my reading list this year to do that. I need to be reading 49 pages per day. And right now I am at, let me look, actually I need to read 48 pages per day. And, and as of right now, I'm, I'm, at 48. It says I need to, to read 49 per day to finish. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of, you know, within that, that boundary there. So I'm having a great time with it so far. And of the 26 books I've read, or 25 I've read so far, my favorite is the Apocrypha. Uh, I read that earlier this month, and that was a real joy. It was the first time I'd ever read that book and, and really enjoyed it. So that'll do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I would love to hear from you. I'd love to hear from you if you've read any of the six books I've covered. And I'd love to hear maybe something you got out of it that I missed or or something like that. I'll be back in a couple weeks. I'll be talking about another book from my, my list this year. And until then, keep reading, keep listening, and keep thinking about it.